Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest is Dr. Diane Hamilton. She is a nationally syndicated radio host uh, doing some awesome things. I've been listening to her podcast. I just listened to one, I think, with Scott talking about water uh, in Africa and other places. And I, I just sat there and was like, my gosh, I'm so wasteful. <laughs> uh, it, it was really a, a deep, engaging conversation. But I wanted to have her on because... Uh, she wrote uh, this blog post on sort of how do you create a podcast, right? And I wanted to have her on to talk about what she has been doing professionally, but also to get her take on how do you start that podcast? How do you launch that podcast? So for those who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, until it's gone, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Simplecast. Will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Diane? Well, thank you for having me on the show. Well, this is going to be fun. I was uh, interested in talking about podcasting. I, I talk a lot about uh, different things on different shows. And, uh, you know, we're always talking business and, and curiosity and some of the stuff that I focus on. But don't talk that much about how to podcast. And I, I it's a really um, popular market for a lot of people who can get so much out of it. So I'm happy to, to chat about it. Excellent. Excellent. So what did you think you would be doing when you were growing up and what drew you to psychology based issues in the workplace? You know, when I was a kid, neither of my parents worked. I had a very unusual uh, upbringing. So I never really thought about what I was going to do. I certainly didn't think I was going to be where I am now. I didn't. I, I always liked business, though. Even as a kid, my mom would give me her old checkbooks or, uh, you know, I, I loved uh, cash registers and things with buttons like typewriters. And I, I was drawn to business related things for some reason, because no one else in my family cared about business. It was all sports. Everybody loves sports. And then here I came going, well, I want a cash register. They're looking at me like I was insane. But uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, I was more of a kid that um, did things that were business related. Like I, I had a little diner I called Diane's diner and I'd charge everybody to make them tuna sandwich or something, you know, <laughs> and I do my, my menu with like three things on it. Like it, So I, I was always trying to do that um, in, in a way. So I guess I was headed towards business. And then um, in the summertime when I was a kid, you know, all the other kids are playing whatever they're doing. And I always made my neighbor friends play school. I like to play school. So I'm not surprised I went in, on to be a professor and do the things that I've done as far as teaching and, you know, but I never thought, oh, I want to be a teacher or I want to be a business person. You just kind of fall into these things. And I certainly never thought I would have a radio show or, uh, uh, you know, own my company and consulting and all the things that I do now. I, I think uh, most of the people in my family all were natural salespeople because we were super competitive in sports and all that as a family. That was our culture. So uh, my siblings and I all went into sales. So that's how I started. So you created the first and only assessment that determines the factors that impact curiosity. What made you curious about studying curiosity? 
you know, just doing what you do and what I do, you talk to so many interesting people during the day, right? And I've interviewed billionaires and geniuses from all around the world. Uh, and when you start to look at people like Steve Forbes or Ken Fisher, or some of the people who I've interviewed who have just done amazing things, Keith Kroc from DocuSign, now undersecretary, um, it, these guys are just so unbelievably brilliant. And there's a, a thread that you see throughout what is in common with them. And that's that they read a lot. They are interested in a lot of things. They're very curious. And I've taught thousands of business courses online and I've had a lot of students who weren't as curious. They kind of wanted you to help them do it instead of, you know, try to figure it out for themselves. So I thought, well, if they could get what these guys have, you know, and, and find a way for this to meet is what I was thinking. So I started to write a book about curiosity because I thought it's all about curiosity. They're very interested in all these things. And as I started to write the book, I realized I can't just write a book about this. I have to fix the problem, right? I got to help people who aren't curious become more curious because as I started writing, I started to see that curiosity was the spark that led to innovation, engagement, productivity, everything that leaders are trying to fix in the business world. And so I started to look at some of the assessments out there, which I'm interested in assessments because when I wrote my dissertation for my doctorate, I wrote it on emotional intelligence and its impact on sales performance. And I'd become certified to give different assessments like emotional intelligence or Myers-Briggs and those type of things. So I thought, well, maybe I'll create an assessment or look at, see what assessments are out there. But all the assessments measured how curious people were. Like you're either super curious or you're not so curious, but it didn't tell me what's stopping you from being curious. So I thought, well, I want to know what's stopping them. And no one had researched that, which surprised me. So I hired a bunch of uh, psychometric statisticians and did all of this factor analysis. And I ended up figuring it out on my own without the specialist because it was so personal to me to know what kind of questions were important to ask. And I found four factors keep people from being curious and their fear, assumptions, technology, and environment. So my assessment, the Curiosity Code Index is what it's called, it, and anybody could take it at curiositycode.com. Uh, it gives you a PDF just like if you took it, a Myers-Briggs or uh, DISC or emotional intelligence kind of test. You get 26 pages. It's typical what you would think. But what it is, is it's so unique that no one's had anything like that. So it's getting a lot of attention. And I've been really um, fortunate to have so many people from the show endorse the book and my work from Steve Forbes to Ken Fisher to all the names I mentioned to, you know, top names in HR, Dave Ulrich, and, uh, you know, just the most unbelievable people out there have stood behind it. And uh, what was great was Keith Kroc wrote the foreword and he was the CEO chairman of DocuSign at that time. And he's the guy who made it IPO. And um, he's just one of the most curious people I've ever met. So it was uh, really sweet and perfect that he would be the one to write it. So you are the host of Take the Lead, a nationally syndicated radio show that is also a podcast. I have subscribed on Apple Podcasts, as I mentioned earlier, and I've been listening. And you're welcome and have really enjoyed what I've been hearing. How did you get involved in radio? You know, I was running the MBA program as a, the program chair at Forbes, and then I decided that I wanted to go back and not do that, just teach part-time. So I still work there as a, you know associate professor. But um, when I left, I thought I wanted to get back into speaking and consulting more, and I needed to update my website. And I hadn't uh, written a book in 
several, many years. And I thought, well, you know, I need some updated uh, interviews of me to put on the site to have it be more recent. And so the very first person I interviewed with was, had a nationally syndicated radio show. And I had just come off from interviewing Ken Fisher uh, as part of my work at Forbes. And I thought, well, that was a lot of fun. I love you know, interviewing Ken because he was just so interesting. And I thought, oh, I like doing that. So at the, after the show, I asked Jim Beach is the one who interviewed me. And I said, Jim, you know, how'd you get this show? This is, a, you know, really interesting. And he goes, well, you know, I think they have an opening if you want, you know, and I, they checked into it and they go, yeah, you can have it. You just have to start in two weeks. So I had to figure it all out. And you have the two weeks ahead of guests. So that's basically, you got two weeks to make four weeks of content. I mean, you know, basically it's four weeks of work and you got to do really fast. And it was challenging because I, I knew how to do video editing because I'd done a little bit of that with Camtasia, but it, I mean, nothing fancy, just, you know, basically cut the ends off of video or something and that would be it. Right. And so, um, I, I looked into it and I couldn't really get any programs I like to work on the PC. And I don't like to work on Apple for certain reasons because uh, I like certain programs you can only get on PC. So I, I, I thought, well, let me look at the, you know, what Jim's using. Jim had been using GarageBand and I thought, okay, well, I have Apple everything else. It's the only thing I didn't have was a, the Mac. And so I bought a little, uh, you know, computer uh, from Apple and um, just so I could have GarageBand to do it. And it was actually, that was the hardest part was the hardware, figuring out how to set up, you know, what to, to figure out how to attach your phone to, uh, I'll show you the piece that you need <laughs> to, to figure out how to attach the phone. Um, you need this little thing to attach to the end of the wire that goes into a box called a focus, right? And you can get those at Apple. I just didn't know how to do that at the time. So it was kind of challenging just to look at the, you know, the box that you had to attach to the computer, to attach to the phone, to get it all into GarageBand because I live near mountains and it's not as easy to use Zoom as um, always sometimes. And the sound's not sometimes not as good. And for some reason it works better when I do it in GarageBand. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> So I want to get into podcasting and starting your own podcast because this is something I've been, I've been presenting on and I've interviewed other people. And when you wrote that article and you laid out your steps, I said, okay, wow, I want to have Ron to talk about it. Uh, what would you say is the first thing that someone should be doing or consider before they buy any equipment? You have to consider the time commitment, first of all, if you're willing to do that, if you have connections to people, if you could get a, a bunch of good people for your show, people people want to hear from, um, it, you have to decide the focus of your show. I had to decide, you know, what my introductory um, music was going to be, what my introduction was going to say. I had to create all that stuff. I, had to, I used Fiverr because it was cheap, you know, so I did that at the beginning. Uh, there's all those kinds of things. But I, since mine was a nationally syndicated radio show, in addition to the podcast, I knew I had to do three shows a week. My, there was dead air if I didn't, right? So it's on my calendar that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, certain markets were going to air my show. 
So that's one really good motivator is, you know, you're, you know, you're somebody else relies on you. Sometimes when people do podcasts, they go, well, I'll do it. And they do one. There's no real urgency to do another. And if you don't have that sense of urgency on your own, you may just do one or two here and there and not have it be consistent. But I think even if you don't do a nationally syndicated show, you can do a podcast and set it up as if you know it should be three times a week and all that type of thing. And what I do is I use schedule once as a calendar to have people sign in to get it, to put it on my Google calendar. So I have this, you know, a certain far in advance of, you know, people always signing up. And I think that if you have the ability to have a lot of connections, I think your first step is, how, who do I want to interview? What am I trying to do? A lot of people are using the show for reasons I'm not. I'm doing it because I'm just curious about people and I want to hear what they have to say. And I'm not trying to sell them anything. I'm not trying to charge them anything. You know, some people charge. Some people use it as a, a loss leader for business. They want to, you know, talk to CEOs and, and be a speaker for their company or be a consultant for their company. And that's a good way to build connections. And that stuff happens whether you, that's your intention or not. Um, but for me, that was not it at all. I, I just thought, oh, this person would be really interesting. But the problem, it gets really super successful. Then you get so many people and you have to turn down people. And that's hard too, because I have a lot of people I have to turn down because they're already waiting six months to get on the show. So I think you need to figure out who your demographic is you want to reach, how, what level of expertise or minimal, qualifica minimal qualifications you want from your um, guests uh, and you know have a, a theme for the show mine's take the lead because I'm talking about leadership success um, and uh, realize whether you're good at committing the time and energy that it takes to do that because it takes years of doing it before you get um, to a level where people really are paying attention to you and if you can't do that kind of commitment because um, I interview probably eight to 10 people a week sometimes. And I do it every week. I've interviewed close to a thousand people in the last two years. So think about that <laughs> two and a half years that the show has been on. That's a huge time commitment because you have the hour that you're doing the show. You have the preparation time, finding the people, reading their bios, watching their videos, coming up with the graphics. You know, there is a lot involved that a lot of people don't realize. So it takes a time commitment. I think in the, initially an hour uh, for the show and an hour for the prep and after part, um, even though it doesn't take me that long now, I think it's a good thing to have in your mind. You're going to have two hours for every hour in, that you think it's going to be, right? So um, I think, you know, it, knowing what you want to do with it, things came along naturally to me later. I started to connect with people like Tom Hazard who, who transcribes my show with his Brandcast at You uh, site. And that's something you can do. It can get um, everything that people say and transcribe it and give you tweetable moments and pictures and graphics. And then that's pretty cool. But a lot of people are trying to monetize this, you know, their shows. And that's a very difficult thing to do with a podcast unless you use it for speaking or consulting or whatever, because it, you're not going to be able to go to American Express or, you know, Mercedes-Benz and say, hey, I want you to be have an ad on my show. It's really very difficult to show um, listening uh, of the show. First of all, iTunes doesn't give you that data. So if most people are listening through iTunes, well, good luck. You can't show that. 
my radio show, um, they, they don't subscribe to the Nielsen ratings, but they do their own uh, monitoring of the show on their website of how many people are listening live on the site. So that could be, you know, 80 to 100,000 or whatever per show, which is a lot of people listening. But it's very challenging to go get advertisers for the show. So I like to advertise. I own that hour on AMFM, one of my shows. I could sit there and talk to myself the whole time if I wanted to uh, and just babble. Nobody, I mean, it's my time. So I can do um, advertising if I want to. And what I do is, I, in per, you know, to break up the interviews, I usually do two in an hour. And um, to be, between the interviews, I'll throw in a, an advertisement uh, of just talking about, you know, maybe I'm certifying people to become uh, certified to give my curiosity code index. So, and I'll have an ad for that. Or I'll have an ad for one of my books or something like that. And at the beginning, I had ads for other things. But I started to use it for my own stuff because... Uh, it's just, a, it's a, you know, you're not going to go around selling corporations on a podcast. It's just until you have, uh, you know, 100,000 downloads and you can, you know, and more, you know, hundreds of thousands, I should say. And you have a following of that, at least that on your social media. What goes into someone uncovering uh, who they are as a host? You know, I hear some people talk about, you know, you should be authentic, but what does that truly mean in terms of owning who you are and what makes you you? Are you asking, should you be yourself or should you create a persona or is that what you mean by that? Well, I don't think people should create a persona, but when you are saying you're going to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're going to own everything mm -hmm. about who you are. What does that mean? Like, how do you do that? Right? Because when you're first starting out a show, you have no background in this. You have no experience. You don't know what you're doing. And now it's like, I hit record. Mm -hmm. People are like, you know, what do I do? <laughs> uh, you know, they get caught up of, do I sound like that? Oh, I don't like the sound of my voice. Uh -huh. All kind of things go through their head instead of them just saying, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to be me. I'm not going to craft anything. I'm not going to do this under any pretense. I'm just going to know what I want to talk about and just let it go. What do you say to people to get them in the mindset to actually do that and not get caught up in other thoughts. Well, I think some people like to read things, you know, that makes them feel comfortable. And I can't do that. I, I just, the hardest part for me is to read the bios. Cause I'm like, well, I don't know, I'm looking at it. I'm not knowing what I'm looking at, you know, and I can't see cause I don't have my glasses or whatever. So I, for me, I, I've been in sales for decades. I mean, I'm a total extrovert and all I do is talk. So now I got, I'm talking for a living. So it to me was a natural thing. But for somebody who hasn't done that, I think your show is a lot better if you don't have forced um, conversations. I think I don't come up with questions when I have people on my show. I, I, I might, I did at the beginning. And then I started to, you know, and, and sometimes I'll put a couple together, depending if it's somebody really, you know, super important. I'll put points of things, you know what I mean, that I definitely want to talk, talk about. But I want it to be a conversation. 
I don't want to go, if we go down this rabbit hole, I want to go down that rabbit hole. And then we, you know, if we talk about something else, uh, because it's more interesting, I want it to be like you're met somebody at a cocktail party or dinner and you're sitting next to them and so what do you do and how'd you get there? And oh, that's interesting. And what, how, and then what, you know, kind of conversations, because I think that your general, your genuine personality comes out then and people can really know you and, uh, and, you know, when I talk to people, I'll say, um, you know, oh, yeah, when I studied that or I taught that or, you know, you throw in things that show a little bit of your background as you start talking to people. So people know, oh, OK, she knows what she's talking about when she's talking about that. That She's just not coming out of left field. As you're talking to me, you've got a podcast, you know, you can, you know, sprinkle in what you've found. And, you know, you know how it goes. So it's the same kind of thing. And I think that a lot of people are scared of making mistakes at the beginning, but a podcast can be edited because it's not live most of the time. And it's easy to edit things. I've had people uh, get stopped by a policeman because they were on their car phone. I had to edit that out. You know, I mean, things happen. And uh, I've had cats and dogs and kids and, you know, and I just bring them into the call. I'm like, who is that? You know, and, but certainly, you know, and I'll, at the end of the show, I'll thank the cat for being on the show or, you know, and you show your personality by realizing it's, it's don't be so serious. It's just a conversation. It's just being recorded. That's all. Mm -hmm. So once someone has an outline of what they want their show to be, mm -hmm. you now have to produce it, right? So that means you have to record it mm -hmm. and edit it and, you know, get this thing as, I guess, a, a product that you feel good about people listening to. Right. Uh, what is your advice on the equipment that beginner podcasters should be using, especially for those who aren't, you know, audiophiles and who are like real geeky about the tech. Yeah, I, it, I tell you, I had none of that background. So, you know, it, it, GarageBand's pretty idiot proof. I mean, if you go on YouTube and watch a couple of videos of how to set up the initial settings, that's the worst part of it. And then you have a file and you just keep copying that. If I had to start over again, I'd have to watch another video because I don't remember how I did it, you know, but uh, I think, you know, it's, I mean, nothing's easier than Zoom. I mean, it, to me, so I use Zoom if it's somebody that's in a, who's in, from another country, if I want to do video, I love Zoom. And so that's what we're on right now. And it is the easiest, best for that. Uh, the thing is with Zoom, you get an audio or video file that, you know, then it gives you that. But if there's a thing at the beginning that you said something or at the end you want cut off, if you didn't start, it started exactly where you wanted it and you want to make it a little shorter, you have to know how to edit and do certain things. And that's the same thing with any of these software packages. But they're all really easy. I like Camtasia a lot. If I do something on Zoom, I will edit in Camtasia afterwards. And uh, it's, it's so simple to me. And so video to me is the easiest uh, because it's all there and, and one easy thing. So I think if you don't, see, I just don't want to get ready every day and have to do hair and makeup every day. <laughs> you know, Will's got it made with the short hair and stuff. He doesn't have to deal with all of this nonsense. But um, it's, it's something that part of the joy of working out of your home and not having to go out is, is the fact, you know, you don't have to get ready. So, you know, I like doing audio only, but every once in a while I'll do a video. But either way, editing's not that challenging it, because I don't 
if somebody coughs or I, you know, I don't worry about the perfect, perfect sound thing. I don't think anybody really cares about that. You're calling on the phone. It's not going to sound the best. It's, sometimes there's a couple of garbled things, big deal. Life goes on when you're not super techie, you know, Every, people are caring more about content and real people that they want to hear about than worrying about if you have a cool, like in, entrance and exit that does the sound the perfect level. That's great. I love that. I appreciate people who do that, but I just, I, my life's too busy because I teach for seven universities. I run a company and I writing books and traveling. And, you know, I, it, when you're interviewing eight to 10 people a week, I don't have the time to do all that. And it gets expensive if you hire people to do all that. And I've never found anybody who has been on my show who said, oh, I wish it was this or that. And those are the kind of people you don't really want to show anyway, if they're going to be that picky because you're, you're doing it for free for them. To give them, you know, you know, focus out there with everybody. So I think the the easiest part to me is, I mean, you, you what you do, you know, you record the show uh, through your software. With me, they call in on the phone. Uh, I have my headset on. I have my microphone on. And I have the record button. I tell them, you know, I'm going to hit record now. And so they know you're recording. And then you just, you read a bio on them and then you just talk like we're talking now. At the end of the show, I hit the end of the record button. And then after I finish talking to them after the show, I go back and I um, take that file and I, um, I upload it through Dropbox and I have that already. Um, but I have to actually edit the file before I do that. And I edit the file, add the music. And I have in my basic file, it's already set up to have the music and ads and everything. So I don't have to do it, just drag it around within it. So it's all kind of done for you. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a really hard thing to do once you've done it. But once I have it in Dropbox, you know, then I have to share it with everybody because you have the AM stations, you have, you know, I have the guy that does the, the uh, transcribing, you know, I have all these different people who I share the files with. So some of that takes a little bit of time also like to create my own graphics, even though certain people create graphics uh, for me for the transcription part of it. But I do some things on my own and I use Canva for the trans for the um, all the graphic kind of things. There's nothing easier than Canva. So I, I go to the easiest, the, the best stuff. So I think you don't really need to spend a lot of money uh, having, you know, the transcriptions expensive, you know, all that stuff could come later. But as far as you can do a podcast, you can do it through Zoom pretty cheap. You can do it through GarageBand pretty cheap. And you have Canva. You have things like Fiverr to do any kind of fancy. If you want to intro music and outro music, just tell them to create this and they do it. And it's not expensive. And so um, I, you can create ads about you just write a 20 second, 30 second little pitch about whatever it is you're selling. You could put some ads into the sh between shows if you have two on one episode. I think if it, I wasn't doing a radio show, I would always do just one person per show because it focuses really well on just one person. But when you're on a radio platform, people don't want to talk for that long. Usually 30 minutes is about as long as I think most people really want to talk or they have, they don't, they run out of stuff to talk about. So if, if the, if it gets on a roll, I'll have people have the whole show. Like today I did three one hour shows and I don't usually have th one person take up the whole hour and I had three of them do it today. But you know, you just never know when it's going to be that way. And I try not to do that because then they're waiting so long to get on the show too. So there, there's a lot of things to think about when you're doing it. Mm. 
I keep my show very simple. It only gets edited if there are sound issues. Uh, otherwise, whatever is recorded during the interview, yeah, that that was is what it goes out. I know some people who they do the audio only, and I have tried that. But I like video because it allows me to see the person's face. Yeah. And mannerisms. And I think it, for me, it helps for a better, better interview. And I remember the first time someone invited me on their podcast and it was audio. I was so dry and, and <laughs> because I, I couldn't see them. I didn't feel it. And uh, my wife was like, you can do better than that. <laughs> and so I just remember the next time to bring more energy and try to speak to them as though we were together in the same, the same room. You know, I, I try to get to know people just from watching their videos and knowing about them before the show. So it does, you know, I've seen their video. I kind of know who they are. I always have their picture, you know, for my graphics and stuff. And I, I think just being in sales, I'm so used to having to talk to so many different people that it, that part isn't the most challenging for me. Um, I would rather do it by video. Um, I'm just uh, not wanting to have to blow dry my hair every day of my life. <laughs> and so when people all say, hey, let's just get together and meet on the, for a video chat. And I'm like, it's always a guy who says it. It's never a woman because we got too much stuff going on. You guys got to keep that in mind, right? Not that we don't want to talk to you, but... <laughs> It's a little bit of a pain. So uh, that's that's one of the things for people who work virtually. I mean, people who aren't working virtually and they're ready and they're out every day, it's no big deal. But I, I try to keep that in mind for people. I know a lot of people don't have that desire to, to be on video for that reason. So I want to ask you about when you're interviewing someone, particularly it's someone you're like, okay, I'm ready for this interview. Been, I'm excited. I've been waiting on this interview and it happens. And it's like, wow, this is like eating dry toast. <laughs> this is going nowhere. Uh, what do you do to pick up the interview, to get them to engage more, to share more, uh, to where it doesn't feel like you just wasted an, an hour of your life? You're going to have a few wasted hours. Trust me. Um, there's going to be a few people who just aren't meant for interviewing. I mean, that's not their thing and they're probably very interesting people. Uh, but I, I, I know when I first started, I had questions written out just in case I ran out of time. And I think it's good for when you're first uh, doing it to do that. And you knew the good interviews were the people you only got through three or four questions uh, in the half hour instead of 30, 35 questions. <laughs> Right. I see recognition in your face because you don't you want people who are good storytellers who, who elaborate and that doesn't always happen. And but, you know, there's also people who like me who have a show and we realize you got to speak in sound bites that if the show is supposed to end it in 30 minutes, I'm not going to start a big story 25 minutes in because I know you've got this limit. So you have to be a good guest if you're going to be on somebody's show. And, and bear in mind that this poor person is putting themselves out there for you. So you have to be somewhat entertaining. But that being said, not everybody's super thrilling. And some people are combative. 
some people think if you're blonde, you're probably stupid or whatever it is, you know, you get an attitude, you get different things. And I've never had a problem. I really, with that so much, I had maybe two people out of a thousand who acted a little snarky and then we got on the air and then I think they probably thought I was probably going to be stupid because of my hair or something. You know what I mean? And then they ended up liking me by the end of the show and we were fine. And I, I've never had, I, I, I pick who I want to be on my show though, you know? And so I've never, if somebody has a reputation for being a pain, I probably wouldn't have asked them to be on my show. But that being said, I did interview somebody and forgot to hit the record button on Zoom once because I never use Zoom and did a whole like 45 minutes without the recording and had to have him do it again right afterwards. And oh, and he was a big name and I felt awful and he was nice enough to continue and do it. But the show wasn't very good because all the good stuff we already said and he's not going to go into elaborated detail again because, you know, and so there's issues like that that are going to happen. I mean, I've had very maybe two or three shows and in, in, out of a thousand that have had any issue at all. I think two. One guy's voice didn't come through, only mine did. And then that one where I forgot to hit record. <laughs> that was bad. But, um, I, you know, I think most people are really open to, to, to talking, but just some people don't elaborate. It's just they're more introverted. They don't go into detail. So you, I make notes while I'm talking to people on the show. I have a little tiny piece of paper uh, by me, pad of paper, I should say. And as I, I say, I write a sentence or a word if, as they're talking and I think, oh, oh, I'll go back and ask them about that. Oh, I'll go back and ask them about that. And I think that that makes it much more interesting because it shows, oh, you were listening to that. And then, you know, and then if they mentioned their kid's name, you, you bring up the kid's name or whatever it is that they brought up. You go, oh, it's like what you said before about X, Y, Z, you know, and it, it's much more, instead of linear, it, you, you have a much more fun conversation. And I think you got to find what people like. What I do is I research people and I look at interviews that they've spoken in the past to see what their style is like. And if they didn't speak in the past, you know, they're not going to speak for you, but you always see what kind of things they answered and you could write down some of those things. They like to answer this question. They like to answer that question, you know, and go back to those if they're not talking because you know, they have answers for those. Well, since you pick your own guests, what is your criteria for who you would want to have on your show? And is there sort of a deal breaker for who you will never have on your show? The, well, I try to avoid uh, politics and religion on the show. So if you say deal breaker, maybe you know, it's not deal breaker. I just don't want to go there. You know, I've had a few, who, you know, I, I actually interviewed Andrew Yang, who's running for president. And I interviewed Steve Forbes, who ran for president. So I've had both parties, you know, on the show. But I wouldn't consider myself a political expert. So that's one of the reasons I don't do that. And I don't want to come across as I'm one-sided on or the other. And so that makes it hard kind of to do politics because you know, even if you stay right in the middle that you're pissing somebody off somewhere, right? So I, I kind of avoid politics. Um, and I don't like to get into religion on the show because it's a business show. And I don't think, you know, I, I try to stay on things that aren't controversial, you know? And so, um, but I, I, what I try, I, I look for people, I mean, I, I have New York Times bestsellers or Wall Street Journal bestsellers. I have uh, Hall of Fame speakers. I have 
billionaires. I have uh, people who've been on movies and, and they've written movies about their lives. Uh, I, I want names that people recognize. Um, that, you know, I think when I first started, I had a lot of people who wanted to be on the show who were like LinkedIn experts and social media experts. And that's great because you get to know people and you get people on your show. But that's not really my focus. Um, my focus is more just really cool stories of something just unusual. I mean, I've had uh, some of my favorite shows have been like I had uh, Eric O'Neill, the guy who they made the movie. Um, Breach. I don't know if you've seen the movie Breach, but uh, it was a great movie about, it's a true story of a guy that worked at the FBI who found the biggest Russian spy in U.S. history. And the guy who played him was Ryan Felipe, I think, in the movie. But the real guy was on my show. And like another movie, Molly's Game, the real Molly was on my show. And, wow. you know, so those kind of people I really find interesting because they got true story. And I loved having Bethany McLean on the show. She wrote, uh, the you know, for the movie Enron, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room movie uh she's the the reporter who broke that story and and uh she's super bright and i i've had um you know i mean it's always cool to have billionaires on your show because they're just so different of what they've done and i've probably interviewed five six maybe more ten maybe i don't know a lot of billionaires have been on the show and um but i have a lot of consultants and and authors who contact me and i just can't have too many of them because it's just not interesting to have the same topic over and over and over of how you know leadership consulting kind of thing and so unless they have a wall street journal or new york times best-selling book about business um i i don't usually have them on the show if, if they have a huge following like i had um guy kawasaki on the other day and he's got what a million plus twitter followers he worked for apple he's a cool guy he was interesting you know what i mean and of course yeah i want him on the show um, so what I do is at the end of the show, uh, when I interview people, uh, if they know somebody, I don't actively look for people, but Hey, I'm open to listening who they think is really good. Uh, I mean, I've had the chef for the last five presidents in the United States on my show. And you know, that was cool. I, I mean, Marty is a cool guy, you know, and I, I would have never met him if I hadn't asked somebody else, who do you like, you know, that kind of thing. So. I think you just, you, you have to decide, I think at the beginning you, you cast a wider net and then as you get busier and you know, people don't like having to wait super long time. Right now my book is like two, three months ahead and then it takes another six weeks maybe for it to air. So, I mean, you got to think four or five months ahead, that's a long time to make somebody wait to have, be on the show and have it air. And I don't like them to have to wait much longer than that. Hmm. You, from the guests you have on your show, I've listened to your podcast and you are calm and confident and, and it's a very uh, relaxed environment. How did you get so comfortable interviewing people who have achieved the level of success they have? You know, it's interesting because the very first person I interviewed was billionaire Ken Fisher. <laughs> And I mean, if, if you watch his interviews, he's, he's a kind of a smart aleck kind of guy. He's funny. I love Ken Fisher, by the way. And um, I, I was working at the Forbes School as, as a professor just, and as the, um, the program chair for the MBA program. And I was helping the, one of the deans there create this speaker program, bringing speakers in. And, and Ken happened to work on our board of advisors. And um, he was going to speak for the uh, events and I thought, well, 
hey, I think it might be fun to interview him ahead of time and get a little extra footage before he speaks because we had the videographer there. Let's, you know, get a couple of questions and ask him a few things. Because I'm thinking, I've got a billionaire here. I want to find out what, what, what makes him tick, right? And I think I'm kind of fearless because, first of all, when you get older, you don't care as much as when you're young and everything freaks you out, right? And, but I, having so many decades of sales, I was a pharmaceutical rep, you know, for 20 years, I worked for AstraZeneca and 15 of them in pharmaceuticals. And, you know, there's nobody harder to deal with than doctors. They can really be difficult. So I'm used to dealing with challenging individuals who didn't have time to talk. You had to force them into a conversation they didn't want to have. Basically, it was that job, right? So that gave me a lot. Um, I was raised around people that my dad, everything was, you know, to be um, polite, not to, to be, no, well, he, he was a very society kind of guy, you know, like you, you have to know where your forks and every, you know, which glass to use and which fork to, you know. So I was taught manners and certain things to a level that maybe other people aren't, have, don't have it forced on them as much as I did. So I had that, I had the sales background and plus I'd done, I'd worked in so many industries because I, other than pharmaceuticals, I was in, I sold uh, computers and software. I was in banking and real estate and, uh, you know, I've worked in hotels. I've, I've done so many different industries that it would be pretty hard for somebody to talk to me about something that I didn't know about because I've done it. And so I think it gives you a sense of confidence. Um, and people think that if you have a PhD that you're smarter than you are, I think, you know, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, they go, oh, well, you know everything. I'm like, no, don't ask me anything about World War, whatever, you know, I, I can't answer it. It's not my focus, right? So I think it's, um, it's a lot of people are afraid that they're gonna look stupid, but it, you know, in sales, they always tell you, if you don't know something, don't fake it. Just say, hey, I don't know. I'll, I'll get back to you. That's a great question. You know, it, you look better if you're a little bit self-deprecating. If you try to fake it and pretend you know everything, then you look like you're kind of a, you know, an idiot because <laughs> you don't want that. And so I, 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 when I interview billionaires, they're no different. I mean, I've interviewed Craig from Craigslist or Naveen Jain, or uh, he's wanting to land on the moon and take, you know, mine the moon and, you know, just crazy stuff. And I'm like, I'm wanting to take him to dinner. I want to ask him. And so I went out my husband and I took him to dinner one night. Uh, I, Jeff uh, Hoffman from Priceline, I've run into him at events. He's been on the show. Uh, you know, all these people, Keith Kroc now is under secretary of state. I go to events at his house. He's got an indoor basketball court. You know, <laughs> I mean, this guy owns the whole block of San Francisco and he's so humble and normal. And you think that they're going to be somebody different, I think, before you interview them and you just realize they're just like everybody else. You know, they just are much more successful and, and super smart. So how do you promote your show? Right. So, you know, once people, the podcast is out, you want people, you know, more people to listen to it than friends and family. So right. how, how do you get the word out that it actually exists uh, to a point where you're able to start to gain traction and build an audience? Well, I think you have to really have a presence on social media. And I, I'm really good at networking because of being in sales. I, I you know, I, I'm, I worry because I'm near that 20,000 limit on LinkedIn, you know, after 20,000 people, you can't add anymore. And, um, but I keep my levels as high as I can on LinkedIn because 
you know, you post every time you have a show, I post on LinkedIn. Uh, I was doing a Google plus until that went by the wayside, uh, you know, at Facebook, uh, I, I don't do as much on Instagram because it's it's not a real visual thing, but I should do more. Um, but Twitter, you know, I'm on all of them. I make sure that uh, I keep, um, that's kind of one of the harder things is keeping everybody's Twitter handles and what you're going to post about them and your Twitter posts. You know, that's a little bit of a pain. Some people use administrative assistance to do that. I do all my own stuff, but um, that is what you have to do. I, the first thing I do on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I, I post them because that's when the show airs. Um, I post uh, on, I, I have a Twitter, um, what I'm going to write on Twitter with all the at signs and all that. And what I do is I copy that, I put it into to LinkedIn, and then I, uh, to make sure that the link pulls up and shows the graphic is correct and everything is correct. And then I, I put, you know, the, the names in and, and tag them on LinkedIn. And so I have that all set. And then I also post into Twitter and all the other ones because it's all set up already that way. But I look at, I do it first on LinkedIn just to make sure it pulls up properly because you can really see it does a nice job of, of pulling that in. Mm -hmm. But then I also take that post and I put it into um, Meet Edgar, which I've had the CEO of uh, at Meet Edgar on my show as well, which is a, is a kind of like a toot sweet or, you know, one of those kind of things where you can put in um, posts that you want to continue to repost later. It's because I don't want people to just see the show once. I want it to continue to repost over and over again. And it'll randomly set to times and dates and reword it a little bit so that it's always reposting for you. So I, I use that and I make sure to tag people so that they know. And then I, my website uh, people that do the transcribing uh, do what I used to do in the beginning. Um, they send a, uh, the graphic and the, a suggested post of what they can put on their sites so that we send that out and we ask them if you like the show, if you could you know, write a testimonial. So go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash testimonials and if you, know, if you had a good experience. So then you're linking that to their sites and you've got more things linked to their sites. And so Testimonials are always good to ask for. Always ask people to share the links, make sure they have them, make sure it's easy for them, come up with wording, uh, whatever it is that it takes for them because they're not gonna go through the trouble of doing it. Um, my, the, the guys that create my graphics come up with an unusual graphic that's unique to them, that has a little uh, quote on it for what they've said on the show and, and so they share that. And um, I think that that's basically, I make sure, you know, people are probably sick of seeing me on LinkedIn because all I do is post, 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 post because uh, I want to make sure everybody's aware. And then, you know, you ask on the show, you know, follow us on, you know, iTunes or I, I mean, I'm on iTunes, iHeart, Roku. You could, if I said her name right now to my echo, I could say play Dr. Diane Hamilton podcast and she'd start playing it. So you, you, you let people know where it is, how, how to share it and constantly have, um, links to things like that on your social media site. This is where we air and this is our radio stations. And then, you know, and in the end of my show, I always say, you know, if you want more information, you can just go to my website and, and uh, you know, ask them to check out past episodes. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to make sure people know. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Diane, for coming on the show. I do have one last question to ask you, but I appreciate you saying yes to coming on. I know that, uh, 
you know, I'm not any of the people you actually interview. I don't I don't know about that. I think you're doing an amazing job, and I was very thrilled to be on the show, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you. So before we go, what is your call to action for those educators who are interested in becoming a podcaster, but they think it's either too expensive or they think it's going to be too time-consuming? Well, listening to shows like this give you a really good idea of what it is. The expense is, you know, the worst is buying the initial equipment right off the bat. Um, but then it's really not super expensive unless you transcribe or do a lot of fancy things. I think I started with Podcast Garden at the beginning. It was pretty cheap per month to have my podcast with them. Uh, I, I got a lot of help from going to Guitar Center. I was really surprised at how great they were at telling me how to set up certain things and which uh, microphones and which headsets and that type of thing. So uh, very never had been into a Guitar Center in my life, and I love that place. It was really cool. <laughs> I was like, oh, where'd this come from? But um, I recommend them. I recommend uh, seeing if you could do it without – you know, if you're uh, capable of spending four or five, six hours a week, whatever it's going to take, uh, marking it into your calendar and just seeing this is what I'm going to do and see if you could keep up with it for a while. Interview family or friends or something just to see if you like it, see how it turns out, see what it does. Create something that you could just use on your YouTube station. That's another place you get to air if you do video, by the way. Uh, and sometimes audio I do uh, with the picture. And, um, you know, just do a little bit of practice. See what it's like to get on Zoom, maybe, just to see how it is to create a little seminar. I've, I've done this with people just to teach them how to do it. It's, you know, it's an easy thing. And Zoom's really good about helping with customer service. They're one of the better companies for that, I think. So I think uh, that might be the easiest, cheapest uh, way to go about it. And if you don't care about blow-drying your hair every day, I'm telling you, it's the best video. <laughs> It's the best way to go. But, Will, you did a nice job with your hair, I have to say. So you're looking good. And you, you don't have the length, though, the issue, you know? You <laughs> oh, no, my wife wouldn't have that. <laughs> so I think, you know, think about um, your end goal. What are you trying to accomplish? Is this trying to get your business? Is it trying to get you notice for your book? Is it trying to, what is it? Why? Why do it? Why do you do it, Will? I first started my podcast because I have a friend who's an international educational consultant, killing it. And I went to him and I said, man, I want to do what you do. And he said, you need to create content. Right. And that's why I first did it. But after doing it for three years, I was bored of talking about technology in the classroom. I mean, that's what I do uh -huh. for a living. I write about it. I was uh -huh. done. I was ready to have other conversations. And then in season four, that's when I made the pivot to start speaking about personal development and educators becoming uh, entrepreneurs or educators becoming consultants, writers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and I felt rejuvenated as a, as a podcaster. You yeah. know, I, I didn't run out of any, any stories because I don't know how many times you can ask one, how do you use iPad in the classroom? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was like, wow, let's do this thing. And <laughs> when things started to turn and then I would say, Hey, you know, reach out to JK Hoey 
you, hey, would you come on my show? Yeah. It's like, oh, did, did that just happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Kara Golden came on the show. Oh, yeah, she's been on my show. She's great. That's yeah, awesome. And then sent me some water afterwards. So Mint uh, is good. I like the, the uh, peach flavor, by the way. Yes, we, we, we enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once I started to, to see the pivot pay off uh-huh. and the plays and downloads go up, right. I said, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm on the right track. And then, yeah. you know, in March, I released my first documentary called The Entrepreneur. Oh, and, Ooh, congratulations. Well, thank you. And mm-hmm. I also was interviewed on Forbes.com about the, the documentary. Awesome. Uh, so, awesome. yeah, I said, like, so I enjoy, <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy that. And now yeah. I'm in season five, and I can say that I podcast because I want to encourage my fellow educators to live a life that they don't have to hit snooze on. Yeah. Right. So that's why I do it. And I also want them to create multiple streams of income and not be solely dependent on a school district to pay for your life. Well, you know, it's really great to have the content, too. If you ever want to write a book, like all my stuff's already transcribed from some of the I mean, Marshall Goldsmiths of the world have all been on my show. And you think of all the people who I've interviewed I, I have so many books already just sitting there if I wanted to, to write them. So that's another really good thing. And even if you don't have it professionally transcribed, you can transcribe it yourself through sites and different things later if you have content. So content is the greatest thing. It's funny because the guy who created my site, he told me to get content. That's why I went and got my, um, my interview originally. And he now goes, I told you to get a little content. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to interview everybody on the planet. You know, he thought he just was telling me to do three or four little videos on YouTube, you know, (laughs) and I come back with a thousand of billionaires and things and, you know, because it it energizes me and I think it's a, it's a fun thing to do. And I could tell you like it too. And I think that it comes through with people, you know, whether they love it or they don't. And uh, I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. This was so much fun. You're welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Simplecast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. I want you to subscribe, leave your comments, share it with people, because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show, and I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Diane Hamilton, for coming on and dropping so many gems, and I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs. And I'm your host, Dr. Will. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.